Hello and welcome to another edition of The Ferncast. I'm Daniel Rad, and today I have Veronica Rasich. Is it correct how you say your surname? Yeah. Yep. Uh, she's a doctor, a rural doctor, uh, working in the UK and has had experience across Europe and uh, around the world. Uh, Veronica, thanks for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, your experience in providing rural healthcare and the challenges we have these days uh, in the country and abroad uh, with the sector. Uh, can you just give us a, a, a brief uh, explanation about your experience? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Croatia, which is where I trained and had my first rural doctor experience as well. Um, and then in 2016, I moved to the UK, finished GP training and have been working as a locum GP since 2020. Um, and I guess additionally to that work, I've also been involved in international organizations. So I've been part of the World Organization of Family Doctors. Um, and within that, Eurepa, which is the European um, Rural and Isolated Practitioner Association, which represents rural family medicine across Europe. Um, and I've also helped to co-found Rural Seeds, which is a global network for students and early um, career clinicians that are interested in rural health. So, yeah, that's a little bit about my background. All right. You've done quite a lot so far. Um, more specifically, I want to have a talk about uh, how we provide healthcare uh, in rural areas, um, your experience being locum in the UK. Um what are the biggest challenges that you've found so far? So I guess the big one is always that there's not enough health and care staff in regards to rural areas and the provision. Um, the second one are challenges just around the population that lives in rural areas. So often there will be a high proportion of elderly people that are living in rural areas. Um, and then the geographical challenges um, that exist. So traveling to those pe those people or them coming in for, you know, exams and things or having to travel long distances for treatments such as cancer treatments or seeing the hospital specialist. So that makes things much more challenging. Um, but yeah, I guess those three things come to mind straight off, mm -hmm. off the bat. But mm. yeah, I'm happy to expand. Yeah, no, uh, please do. I'm I, I'm I'm quite interested. You say about the elderly, um, the aging issue in rural areas. Uh, as many people listening to this podcast will know, uh, rural areas of the UK uh, specifically um, have a disproportionate amount of elderly people living there. Uh, whether they've moved there upon retirement or you know they've lived there their entire lives, it seems to be a growing trend, at least in this country. Um, how has that impacted, you know, the availability of providing healthcare? So I guess sometimes the challenges lie in what's happening with local services. Um, just the other day, I was in Wales for their rural health and care conference. And some people were telling me about the closures of local minor injury units, for example, which is making people travel then more than an hour or an hour and a half to go to the next nearest um, treatment centre. And often there's also a challenge of not having 
easy access through, for example, 111. So sometimes people that find themselves in a situation where they're feeling very unwell or a member of their family is feeling very unwell or something has happened, they don't feel they can wait on 111 to find out what they need to do and they'll go in the car and go to the nearest A&E. Um, and if they don't have these more local services available, so an out-of-hours centre or a minor injuries unit that's closer, then that post puts strain on the service and on the family. So the financial requirements to travel those few hours are there. And if they then feel that they haven't had their problem resolved and then they have to go to some other second and third place, I think all of those factors um, come together to just not make a very satisfactory result. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people will choose just not to go, even when they need to go and ask for medical attention. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's another challenge in rural areas that often people will wait until they can't wait anymore. Um, and depending on the condition, sometimes that can lead to poorer outcomes because we're seeing people at much later stages of, of illnesses. So... Um, you're at that cure stage at least, or, you know, um, rather than prevention stage. Uh, yes. So, um, would you say that certain areas of the country, wherever you're working have, uh, shown, uh, you know, a, a worsening situation or a higher severity issues? So currently I've been working in Gloucestershire and the surgeries I've been working with have actually been managing it very well because they have developed a kind of frailty service, mm-hmm. as it's called, which is much more focused on their elderly population. But this will vary across the country and as to the availability of staff and how certain surgeries are set up. But I think this kind of model is very good. Uh, I'm not sure how widespread it is across um, England and the wider UK. But it means that there is a team dedicated to kind of checking in on um, more elderly patients with more complex conditions. Um, and it means that they will visit often and see the people in their home, which is a lot easier both for the person and both for the family. So sometimes if you have to bring um, your elderly family member into the GP surgery, it might mean taking a day off work, which, again, depending on the situation, can be quite complicated. Yeah, um, especially through unemployment. Um, yes. Which, what, which part of this sector that you're working in and in the rural areas have surprised you what 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 you know what surprised you in terms of how you're responding to the issues i think often at the moment it becomes more amplified the problems become more amplified based on what's going on in the overall system as well so at the moment unfortunately primary care is under a lot of pressure So often that will result in maybe not having enough time for people. So people getting 10 minutes to speak about one problem um, when they've been kind of collecting problems for the past few months. Um, And from a GP perspective, there's always a feeling like you're not having enough time with people. Um, You're possibly missing something with the sheer volume of people that you're seeing. Are you maybe overlooking something you shouldn't be overlooking? And then from there, um, there's no services when you need them. So there's a lack of care services, for example. So we might have people that need support at home, but there's just not that social care staffing there to provide that adequate support. Or there's no 
kind of capacity in the community from the voluntary sector or other civil society groups which could possibly pick up the slack and all of that needs supporting so sometimes people um i think sometimes people think oh yes there should be some kind of voluntary organization that does this work but i always think it's very important to remember that if if you want to rely on those kind of services those services also need support and funding and often th- most of their time is spent chasing after some kind of funding to keep mm. that support service afloat um so I, I think it's a reflection of the wider system. I, I believe there's these issues in urban areas as well, but I think they're much more pronounced in rural areas where there's just fewer people to do the work and there's often much less funding going into rural areas, which has a knock-on effect on healthcare and all other services. So you mentioned uh, the situation to do with uh, social domicile care. Um in the UK, at least from what I remember, it's controlled by the uh, county councils, correct? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and there was a switch at one point. I knew, for example, occupational therapy care used to be under the, <clears throat> or at least around here, it was under the guise of the NHS, but it shifted over to the local county council. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that, you know, there needs to be a bigger emphasis on, uh, you know, social care? specifically for the elderly sector um, and, you know, more funding if that's available or not? I believe there needs to generally be a bit of a closer look at what's happening with the social care sector. I, I, I think it's often overlooked and it's an important part of letting people stay independent and keeping people in their local communities. Um, and if we think about rural areas, often there might not be access to care homes, for example. Mm. So if you are not able to help people stay independent in their own homes, you're then faced with families having to look further afield for some kind of care facility. Um, and I, I don't believe that's a good solution for rural rural communities and families living there because it means that they're also having to travel to see their loved one. And much longer distances if they do place them in a care home. And even if they can reach them. Even if they, yes, yeah, if yeah. they can reach them. And then there's the additional financial side of it where often care is quite expensive. Um, and depending on individual circumstances, that may or may not be a possibility. So there is also um, an important factor of rural poverty and how that is often masked through rural communities because there can be rural poverty within quite affluent areas. Um, it's a hidden poverty, isn't it's it? It's a hidden poverty often, yeah. and I don't believe the current data that's being collected really captures that. And when data isn't captured and when situations aren't perceived, then they can't be addressed. So I think that's also something that we need to be aware of and try to do better with. With regards to technology... Um, the NHS is pushing people to, you know, book appointments online. They have the NHS app. Um, how have you found the reception to that in uh, rural areas? Do you feel like, for example, you know, they have been less responsive or more responsive? I think there's been a lot of great hopes placed on digital health and AI in making health more accessible in rural areas. 
But I think we need to remember that there are also significant barriers to rolling out digital technologies in these communities. So often it might be the simple fact that mobile and internet coverage is just poor mm -hmm. um, and it makes it much more difficult to access things like remote consultations or even telephone consultations. So I've often had problems just doing telephone consultations because mobile signals come in and out during the consult. Um, this must be quite an alien thing for people listening from old models. Um, but it is very common. Yeah. And people know in their community, oh, I'm in this area, there's no signal here, I'm sorry, it's going to get patchy now. And they know which part of their yard they have to walk to or the house, which room has the best reception. So it, it's basic things like that, which are already kind of a hurdle at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and then the digital infrastructure is also something that could enable other activities in rural areas, which I don't think we often think about, but it could enable younger people to choose to stay living and working there. They could open businesses, but if they don't have basic digital infrastructure, then they won't choose to do that because it makes it too difficult. Um, and yesterday I was speaking with two diabetes nurses working in rural Wales, and they explained how Google Maps doesn't work in the area that they have to do really? house visits in because it just the internet signal drops out. Oh, I, and so they have to download the Google Maps so that they can keep using it. Um, so it's things like this, which I, I don't think people are aware of. And they think, oh, that problem's been solved, but it hasn't. And it's it's vital if you're talking about digital technologies and using this for services such as healthcare. So we are quite aware that, you know, the elderly sector um, struggles with yes. technology. And, you know, it's obviously uh, management inside the NHS that would like people to do this because, you know, technically yes. it's more efficient. Right. Yes. And that's definitely an additional barrier that the aging population often doesn't have smartphones mm. and they might not have the digital skills that are needed to engage with these new technologies. Um, and to take advantage of the potential benefits, we're going to need to invest in digital literacy, which is also not discussed very often. And if not, then provide some kind of support for people so that they can access services. Otherwise, we're risking having a huge digital divide between rural and urban areas, again, furthering inequality and reducing access to services that are important. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely there's lots of things that need to be considered there. And I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, we've just, we've got this technology now and we'll just roll it out and it will be fine. Um, I mean, on that, you, they are, the, the local um, NHS services in your area, the GP surgeries, do they have a telephone line where they, people can call still or is it all online now? It is telephone line. I think the online part often for GP surgeries is that it's cloud. It's in the cloud now, mm. but you still have a certain number of lines and you still only have the limited number of reception staff that are able to answer the call. So these are also limiting factors. Um, and I think the fact that you know appointments are more difficult to get for people, the whole calling at eight in the morning I know is very problematic in lots of places and often elderly people will give up mm. and I don't think we're measuring that either if I'm honest. I, so I you mean like wonder. if like for example if someone is um, booking online I mean I think I can do that with mine right yes. here you can book online so you, you might be taking the place of someone who is you not digitally native yeah yes so, so both oh. both with the digital booking and both with just telephone calls because sometimes elderly people 
can't work out why they can't get through, then mm. they don't know how to use the online booking. They can't make it to the surgery because they have mobility issues, for mm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, I, I'm a bit concerned about that group of people that they are just not accessing. And they might not even be counted, right? Or being counted, yes. So I, I don't have the numbers on that. It's just a, a feeling I have working day to day and thinking about how people are accessing us, whether we're actually missing this group of people and what's happening with them and how do we make them more visible and how do we maybe start reaching out to them a bit more. And I'm sure there's different very different in how they do things so there might be some surgeries that actually proactively go and reach out to the people they've not heard from and yes we will reach out when you know annual reviews are due and things like this but when someone maybe becomes suddenly unwell we might not know about it right okay oh well that's uh somewhat depressing news um do you think there is any innovations happening in in your work have you have you worked out anything in your practices um that's you know been an absolute roaring success in recently you know with regards to technology or you know innovation in the rural health sector i think that for rural gp surgeries often the ones that have continued to have a combination of you know, they've got the digital services for the younger population that knows how to use it, but they also have the usual face-to-face home visiting and these kind of frailty teams that are checking in on the more vulnerable part of their patient community. I think that works quite well, but I, I, I know it has its challenges and limitations, and often this will just be time and staff and funding to do certain programs. So if you don't have those three things, it makes it much more difficult to stay on top of all of the things you need to. Um, As for innovation that's more specifically targeted for rural, I don't know of any in in the UK specifically off the top of my head. What about across Europe? Because you you know you are connected with the different countries. Is there anything that you've seen globally that would stand out? So I think on a UK level, there is a good new development um, that's happened. So there's now a National Centre for Rural Health and Care. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they're going to be coming out with research and guidance as to maybe how to approach some of these challenges. And there was a all-party parliamentary group in Korea on rural health in February 2022. Um, which tried to raise some of these issues, obviously, with the government um, and try to inform them on things that need to be focused on. And I think they came back with four main recommendations. One was building understanding of the distinctive health and care needs of rural areas. Two was to deliver services that are suited to the specific needs of rural places. Three, develop a structure and regulatory framework that fosters adoption and innovation. And four, develop integrated services that provide holistic person-centered care. Mm. Now, I think these are good recommendations, but I think it also highlights that we haven't sorted these things out. So there's... The holistic holistic care side, that sounds like an expensive operation. (laughs) I'm sure it will be. And I think the main barrier to most of this is the lack of data. 
So we don't have good information about what is happening with rural communities, what's happening with their healthcare. Um, it gets lost in the wider information gathering for general areas or counties. Um, there's work being done to try and improve this, but it's slow going, particularly because we also haven't invested in having rural academics. So people that are kind of based in rural areas live and breathe kind of what's going on in rural areas and are motivated about sorting out those problems. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one of the things that we probably need to think about, not just in the UK, but in Europe and globally, is how do we enable rural-based research and career development? Because I think if you're talking about recruiting and retaining staff, then you need to think about, well, what does a young clinician want to do? And usually it's things like, well, they want to start a family and they want to think about their career development. So you need to have basic infrastructure and services in place to enable that, which includes childcare, schooling, um, internet infrastructure, and some kind of activities which then enable them to stay on top of their career development. So that's an interesting point. So, um, you know, at least in the UK, there, there's a bit of a problem of attracting uh, GPs to um, rural, uh, you know, practices. Uh, yeah. What? Why is that for people uh, who, you know, may not understand? So often it's to do with not knowing how to practice in a rural area. Um, so unfortunately, most training for medicine happens in urban centers from mm -hmm. medical school through to specialist training. And partly, even in GP practice, that's to do with maybe limited access to trainers in rural practices. So part of GP training, you do go off into GP practices and do your placements there, but you need to have mentors and trainers available at those practices to be able to go there. Um, and then there's the additional skills that you might need because you're not so close to a hospital um, that aren't always automatically part of the education process. So for example, um, you might need to consider having some kind of emergency and trauma skills that you might not need to use as much if you have hospital level services or easy access to um, ambulances. Whereas in rural areas, it may be that actually there's no one around and an air ambulance has to come to collect your patient. And while you're waiting for them to come you might be the first one called to the scene to stabilise the person right. who's injured so, or something else. So you're saying that the role of a rural GP is significantly more demanding than, say, an urban counterpart? It can be, and again, this will depend on the specific county and area that, that you're in. But I, I think it can be more demanding, and if it is perceived as such and people don't feel that they're ready to take on those additional skills and responsibilities then that might be a factor that's contributing to not choosing to go to work in a rural area. Um, and additionally, I think very often it's those life factors of, well, where will my partner work? Mm. Where will my children go to school? Will we then have to move again if, for secondary school or things like this? And mm -hmm. I think that's often overlooked, but doctors are just regular people too with their families and 
and you know children and elderly parents that they also need to take care of so all of those factors come into play and I think part of it is also thinking about well how do we get students interested in rural careers because right yeah. now even getting students interested in GP work in general um, is difficult because general practice as part of the undergraduate curriculum is usually quite small and there would have been lots and lots of different hospitals, especially the specialists that would have had more time to influence student choices. Um, and then there's the additional environment at the moment where there's not necessarily good uh, news being spread around about general practice and what's going on there and the NHS and all of that. So there, there's lots and lots of factors that influence these decisions. Mm, mm. So... What is your final recommendation for this podcast uh, in terms of, you know, beating the drum? Can you tell us a little bit about Rural Seeds and uh, your work in promoting the idea of rural doctoring? Yeah, so I think it's very important for current rural clinicians to maybe be a bit more vocal about their profession, what it's like to work in rural medicine, and... Um, I think they need to maybe more proactively try to mentor um, and support people that look like they have an interest in considering a rural health career. So Rural Seeds was a network that was born out of the frustration that they're often in countries outside of, let's say, Canada and Australia. There's not really a very clear rural career training pathway. Mm-hmm. So... We happened to meet, so a few of us met at a conference and started talking about how no one talks about rural health careers, we're the only ones that seem to be interested in this topic, how would we even learn about it, where would we find more information? And so out of that, we decided, okay, maybe we can try and do something on a global level because maybe in our town or or area, there's not anyone we can find that's interested. But at a global level, we could probably find... 40, 50 people. Um, and it started out with doing monthly um, rural family medicine cafes where we just discussed different rural health topics from you know, rural urban divide, rural mental health, mm-hmm. leadership in rural health, just a variety of topics. And that kind of grew into a network over a couple of years. And then we launched Rural Seeds, which was a project-based network so we wanted it to be something that had some results and got people actively engaged. So we um, had different projects. So one was the cafe. The second one was Rural Health Success Stories, which was a blog where people could share their positive experiences of working in rural health. Um, we started a mentor-mentee program, which was an online um program connecting experienced rural clinicians to students or early career clinicians that are interested in rural health. That was quite successful and we've just had our second round this year. Um, And we did a rural videos project. Again, it's about raising awareness of rural health, rural careers, and just having a place where people that are interested can connect with each other and be a bit more inspired about the possibilities in rural health. so yeah, that's a little bit about rural seeds and a possible way to motivate people to go into rural careers. Great. And is there any uh, 
online profile that they can reach you? Are you on uh, X now? I, I am. Um, so for Rural Seeds, there is a website, ruralseeds.net. Um, there's also a website for Eurepa, which is the organization I mentioned before for European Rural Medicine, uh, which is eurepa.org, so E-U-R-I-P-A.org. Um, I am on LinkedIn as well. Um, that might be easier because it's just under my name. It might be easier to find. Um, but yes, I don't know if you wanted me to add anything else. No, I, I mean, you know, um, if there's uh, any specific things you think that's worth mentioning. Yes. So another thing I've been working on over the past year is a podcast about rural health. So oh, yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's Plug called that. The rural, yes. It's called The Rural Road to Health. Um, and it really focuses on rural health, rural health careers and rural communities more broadly. So I've had um, 18 interviews with people from 13 different countries over the past 10 months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about what's the state of rural health in different countries? How have they um, overcome certain challenges that they face when they were starting out in their rural jobs? Um, we've talked with a community interest company from Devon, for example, as well, that works with community-led um, innovation and how to um, help people access services and 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 that side of it. Um, and yeah, academics, uh, other people from um, other sectors like public health. So I would really encourage everyone to have a listen if they're interested. Great. Um, thank you. Yeah. Super. Well, Veronica, Dr. Veronica, I should say, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's been great to speak with you. And uh, I hope to have you back on soon. Thank you. Thank you.